Hello once again, y'all. I am Wanda Swan. I am Shannon Palma. And this is Once Once Upon Upon a Patriarchy. So, we are here today to discuss uh, Disney's The Princess and the Frog. I can also confess that I have been calling it the Frog Princess for quite some time. And I was just told that that was not correct. So, we are joined today by another special guest. This is... um, this is going to be a good one, y'all. I feel it already in my systems down, you know, in my, in my soul. I will go ahead and already, spoiler alert, I'm probably going to make some people mad. But I still love you. Keep listening. As always, what we're going to do today is we are going to examine this particular Disney animation and Shannon is going to give us a little bit of backstory. We have a really, really, really special gift today with our speaker today, who's also done some background on the princess and the frog. And so she will also lead us into a little bit more uh, background and origin story that we'll pair and then we'll we'll do some really good deep diving. So I'm going to let Shannon um, introduce our guest and also give us a little bit of the rundown of what we're doing today. Shannon Poma. Why, hello. All right. Today we have with us Esther Moody Graf Radford. Sorry. Who we love so much. Truth. It's some truth. She is the owner of Graf Radford Law, which uh, specializes in asylum law. She is also the coordinator of the Graf Radford Family Homeschool. She is a Francophile, Bibliophile, Chocoholic, and Wondermonger. (laughs) Esther, I know, right? Esther hates traffic circles and any coffee described as bright. Welcome, (laughs) Esther. Hello. I'm so excited to be here, and this movie is going to be a really fun one to talk with you guys about. All right. So what we're going to do, Esther... You guys are going to give us some backstory. And then there's three questions that we always ask our guests. One is for you to talk through some of the things that stood out. The second is how these things influence your anti-oppressive or anti-oppression work. And this is something that I'm so excited to hear. Your retelling oh, yeah. of The Princess and the Frog. This, y'all, we are in for a treat today. So I am going to shit it. And I am going to let Shannon and Esther both take it away. So uh, Esther and I were talking before the recording started and realized we'd gone down very different rabbit holes with our research. So <laughs> totally doesn't surprise me at all. Esther's one of the most prepared people I know. <laughs> and it's just our different obsessions. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the Grimm version and the book that ended up kind of being the center of the the named center of the film and also this uh, Longfellow poem that also makes an appearance in the film. And then Esther's going to pick it up with some nods to a different fairy tale, a Russian fairy tale that actually has a really strong parallels with the movie they eventually made. Sound good? Yeah. Sounds great. Woo! Okay. So the Frog Prince, which is the story, the Grimm story that most people think about, there's actually two, at least two versions. There's the Frog Prince and there's the Frog King or Iron Heimlich or Heinrich or Heimlich. Heimlich is when you're choking. Heimlich is when you're choking. Okay. Heimlich. <laughs> Sorry. I'm so like, wait. This has to stay in the podcast. Don't edit this out. Start it. Okay, <laughs> fine. The Ironheimlich maneuver. I have a PhD. Thank you. Ironically similar to Ironheimlich <laughs> and what he did. Oh, wow. A lot of similarity there. So in the fairy tale, the, the it's not a good one to choose for adaptation because the princess is spoiled brat and the frog is creepy. Super creepy. Creepy frog. Creepy frog. So princess drops a golden ball in the spring. She's a young princess because her favorite activity is throwing a golden ball in the air. So what? Wait, a ball? Wait, we're not talking about like a a, a soiree. We're talking about no, like a ball. A like she tosses it in the air. I thought that's and a catches slang. It. When no. you said, "Oh, she drops the golden ball," I'm like, "Oh, so they coming out and they looking you good." You know, I'm not that cool. No. <laughs> Dang, this is already depressing. Okay, go ahead. Go She's ahead. on the edge of a well. There's a golden ball. Right. So she drops her golden ball, 
It's an actual, like a child ball. She drops it in the spring or the well, whichever version. And she's crying because she wants her ball back. Does not suggest to me an adult heroine, by the way, <laughs> just so you know. So she's five. <laughs> <laughs> Which gets really super creepy uh, really fast. So the frog, this frog hops up and is like, hey, lady, why are you crying? And she's like, I lost my ball. And he's like... I will get your ball for you if you will promise to love me forever. Oh, and, my God. Oh, yeah. And uh, let me live with you and eat off your golden plate and sleep in your bed. Mm-mm. And she's like, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> Maybe you can get my ball back. And he gets her ball and she takes off running. And she's like, see ya. She doesn't even, I don't even know that she says see ya. She's just like, frog's forgotten. She's gone. She's gone back. He was a frog. Right. Whatever. So she lies. So then that night, there's some knock, knock, knocking on the castle door, and she goes out, and it's the frog, and he's like, remember your promise. And she's like, go away, you're ugly. She shuts the door. Frog reckoning. Right? And the king, her father's like, what's going on? And she tells him, and he's like, you got to keep your word. (laughs) To a frog. To a frog. Which is also another thing that makes me think she's a child. Right? Like, so. Yeah. Froggy comes in, and she has to feed him from her golden plate, and then he sleeps on her, and carry him upstairs, and then he sleeps on her pillow, and then this, and then in the morning, he hops away, and she's like, thank God, that's done. And then he comes back a second time, and then he comes back a third night. And right. It, because the love you for everything. Right? Thing, so right? he's just going to show up at night and sleep on her, eat, eat her food and sleep in her bed. Like, I know that, men would do that. Right? It's kind of a common story. Yeah. And on the, at the end of the third night, she wakes up and there's a handsome prince there who's like, yo, I was cursed by this wicked whatever, and now we're going to get married. No, I didn't consent to that. No, it's not phrased as a question. No. It's like, I want nothing more than to marry you. And then after a while, she's like, okay, she's got to be. Like, is she even 10? Like, who plays with the ball past 10? Like, I mean, I admit I actually really enjoyed playing with balls, but... <laughs> Like, wouldn't you think she'd be, like, in some sort of class with manners? She's a princess. Like, why is she out roaming the countryside with a ball? My my question is not why is she outside roaming the countryside with a ball. My my question is why is she only doing that? Right. That makes me think that she's three. Right? Yeah. That's her only activity? Yeah. It's about as strenuous as her brain waves can handle that's the problem for me. You're not a very bright princess. Right. So anyway, uh, this coach drives up, and it's driven by the prince's loyal servant, Heinrich, who... Okay. Heinrich? Heinrich. Okay. I keep, I keep trying to do the Heimlich thing. Heinrich. <laughs> and, and he was so sad about his master's fate that his heart nearly burst but it didn't so they all drive off together there's another version the frog king that also emphasizes poor heinrich at the end who like in that version he has placed iron bands around his heart to keep it from bursting while his master is so enchanted which to me is like a gay subplot love like why why is he even oh maybe she's just conduit for their dreams to come true. Exactly. She's just, I mean, she's a, kind of a brat. She's a liar. She's a brat. I mean, given that she's a child. Yeah. It makes sense. She's but eight. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. It's still weird. Yeah. So, the whole fairy tale is about reinforcing that nobility is essential, right? Not earned or not, that, that even mm-hmm. those who appear to have access who are other are not, that they're actually noble on the inside. Yeah. Then having the loyal retainer show up and Uncle Tom it up at the end is a very reinforcing kind of notion, right? Yeah, it's the yeah. it's the slaves dancing in the moonlight kind of. Ugh. He loves me so much. He's just been waiting for me to come back this which, whole time, which we saw with uh, Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. right? This idea of Cinderella too, with the and Cinderella, with right? The animal this, friends. This idea of uh, we are we are impacted by what is happening to basically the master of the house. And so we have a role to play in this as well. It's like, no, go be free. Just be go free. be free. Nope. Not free. Oh, all right. What if? So um, Disney, when they, they'd been trying to figure out what to do with the Rock Prince story for a while, they hadn't come up with something. They'd optioned this book that came out in 2002. It was called the frog princess. It's by Edie Baker. It's E D Baker initials. 
Um, and that's about this Princess Emma who runs away from uh, she's, she, she finds out she's going to have to marry her worst enemy. And so she runs off into the swamp and she meets this frog and this frog is like, what's up with you? Like, why are you upset? And she tells him and he's like, Hey, could you kiss me so that I won't, I'm actually an enchanted prince. Could you kiss me and break my curse? And she's like, whatevs. And she does it. And then she turns into a frog too. And they go on adventures trying to find the witch who originally cursed him and there's various things they run into. And I think this goes to, this is really aligns with what you're going to talk about, Esther. But she goes, they go on various ventures together. They can't find Mudeen. At first they find this other woman um, who's a little bit nuts. And then they go back and find Emma's aunt, Gracina, who is also a witch. And she explains that the reason it happened was that Emma had been wearing a curse reversal bracelet that she'd given her, and that's what made her turn into a frog instead of him turn into a human. Mm -hmm. And so the answer is that they both need to kiss while, while they're both wearing the bracelet. The bracelet, in the course of their adventures, had been stolen by an otter, so they go find the otter and get the bracelet back and reverse it, and it's all good. And the otter turns out to be the enchanted love of Gracina. I think you know your otter. Right? And there's two sidekicks. There's a, a, a bat and a snake that are sidekicks. You love sidekicks. I do love sidekicks. But I think these two are really interesting because there's a flying creature and there's you know an amphibian or a, a serpent. Mm-hmm. Um, creature, kind of scaly, mm. right? Who are hanging out, helping them. And in this case, it's the snake Fang who finds his lost love while they're going about their adventure. So there's, there's, you can okay. see a lot of parallels with what they did in the movie. And it was a, they basically Disney had optioned the book, and then renewed the option three times and never done anything with it, mm. and then threw it in with the Frog Prince and the traditional animation thing. And then the other big influence, the rabbit hole I went down, and Esther's going to come back to the fairy tale antecedents, but the rabbit hole I went down is the firefly. So I went down a Raymond rabbit hole, which is I was really interested in Evangeline mm-hmm. and that whole mm-hmm. idea of Evangeline the star that he's in love with. Oh, this makes me happy. He was one of my favorite problematic characters. <laughs> <laughs> he is uh, that storyline. <laughs> So true. That storyline is called back to a Longfellow poem, Evangeline, which is about the expulsion of the Acadians, hmm. which is, it's, it's all messed up because the, so the Acadians are the ancestors of the Cajuns mm-hmm. in New Orleans and Louisiana. Mm-hmm. However, the Longfellow poem is about, there were two, two kind of waves of expulsion. So basically the Acadians were, were French settlers in Canada mm-hmm. in like Nova Scotia, um, Prince Edward Island, that kind of area. And when, like, right around the French-Indian War, which I don't know why we still call it that, but right around that time, um, the British were decided to expel all the Acadians from that region and push them out because they were suspected of supporting the French, even though most of them stayed neutral. Mm-hmm. So they were all expelled. And the first, or the, anyone they could find, some people hid. But the first wave went into the U.S. They were, or they were sent into the colonies. And the Evangeline poem follows a young girl from that wave of expulsion uh, who wanders the colonies looking for her lost love, Gabriel. And then in her great old age, she's working as a sister of mercy with the poor and she finds him and he's gravely ill and he dies in her arms. Super depressing. But the Cajuns in New Orleans are from the second wave of expulsions, and those folks were sent back to France and Great Britain. Mm -hmm. And then they were recruited by the Spanish to settle in Spanish Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And so Acadian became Cadian and then became Cajun, Mm -hmm. right? So they're trying to, with that, call back to the Cajun ancestry or the Acadian ancestry, but they're, they're actually calling the wrong... Acadians. Mm -hmm. That's the wrong way. So, like, they weren't the folks that ended up in Louisiana. So, I found that a little bit like it's just a big mashup, Mm -hmm. and I think you can tell that in the resulting film. And then, so that's I got super obsessed with the Acadians, and I went down that rabbit hole pretty far. But Esther went down a different rabbit hole with a different version of the kind of the Frog Prince Princess story. 
Esther? So this is just a result of me being a nerd with access to Wikipedia. This is not a scholarly uh, pursuit. Do not knock the nerd with access to the, to the internet. So I Googled this, and what I ran across was an interesting... So my husband's family is of Russian ancestry, and I, I get really fascinated by the way Russians tell these archetypal folk stories. And so I Googled this story and went off down the rabbit hole that branches off into the Vasilisa tales. And the Vasilisa stories are really interesting because there's one, Vasilisa the Wise, I think is the variation that has so many elements in common with this Disney movie. It was really fascinating to me. So basically, in this story, a king has three sons and he needs them to go out and seek their fortune and find a wife. So they shoot arrows in different cardinal directions, and two of the sons find human women of varying degrees of good character, etc. And the third son's arrow lands in the mouth of a frog, who actually turns out to be the enchanted, hardworking, wise human woman Vasilisa. Vasilisa, I don't know exactly how this happens in all the versions, but somehow she she has been enchanted because of the vengeful desires of this, and I don't know how to say the name, but it's this archetypal male bad guy, and I think it's Kotchki, but I could be completely mispronouncing that. But he is described always as being very strong and healthy, but almost inhumanly thin, of almost skeletal appearance, and very tall. And so he's the one who has enchanted Vasilisa and turned her into a frog. And what's interesting about him is that he's the guy in Eastern European stories who wears his soul, who has separated parts of his soul out into these horcruxes. And so he's got this egg that contains his soul. And it's in various places in various stories. But that definitely has a parallel in the shadow man and the talisman that holds his essence, that he, he dies when that gets broken. So the prince goes on a quest to find Vasilisa and break the curse from her and reunite himself with her. And he's aided in this quest by various versions of the Baba Yaga. And the Baba Yaga is so fascinating to me because she's the character who represents kind of this unpredictable crone archetype. So she sometimes is helpful. Sometimes she's wicked. Sometimes she just gobbles you up and that's the end of you. Sometimes she gives you magical artifacts that help you in your quest. And there's different variations of it and happens in various ways. But basically, the Baba Yaga tells the prince how to find Vasilisa, how to destroy this evil sorcerer who has cursed her. And the Baba Yaga is an old woman in a tiny house, and the house runs about on chicken legs. And I when the Baba, Baba Yaga... Yaga. I do. I <laughs> she's love just Baba great. Yaga. She's just she's magnificent. So fun. And so Baba Yaga, when she flies around, she flies around in... She's closely associated with food, right? So she's running around in this chicken house on chicken legs. Which, by the way, is Wanda's for, like, worst fear. Worst fear. I had a chicken to become situation. the Baba Yaga? No, she <laughs> yeah. had a, I had a chicken situation as a child. My aunt had a chicken named Mabel who stayed in her house. And Mabel ran the house. And Mabel was always running around. And she was very angry, which I can understand. <laughs> being in the house and finding humans there and being disturbed. And so Mabel was quite the erratic and violent chicken. So. So you basically grew up under the thumb of the Baba Yaga, is what you're telling me. <laughs> Sorry, that was just such a perfect yeah. parallel with her Yeah, I got a thing. I got a thing with, I had with to raise cats and chickens. Um, both, yeah. But please continue. Continue, please. Baba Yaga. So the Baba Yaga, the Baba Yaga flies around in a cook pot when she's not in her chicken house. Mm -hmm. She flies around in a kettle. Um, so food plays a really odd role in the Baba Yaga stories and it's really central and I see it come up a lot in this movie too in a way that people um it plays a huge role in Louisiana culture and in New Orleans culture too I had I have some interesting thoughts about the way that it's used in this movie that I will share when we get there but that's the story of Vasilisa all right so that was actually pretty dope retelling um and it really makes me think about some of the questions I had about Mama Odie's character and yeah this this is gonna be great this is gonna be great 
this is going to be awesome. So I'm going to start with the first question. Themes. <laughs> I am, there's just so much that happened here. Esther, what were some of your initial thoughts after? First of all, have you had, had you seen it before? I had seen it. I saw it when it first came out. Okay. I had a small child, you know, I had like a three or four year old daughter when it came out. So it was obligatory. Yes. Yeah. What were some of your initial thoughts after seeing it again in preparation for this um, episode of the podcast? And has there been any changes or are you still seemingly, because I think this is what, 2009, maybe? What were some of your, Mm -hmm. yeah, some of your ideas and how true are they still kind of for you in the place where you were in 2009 upon first seeing it? So I don't know that I thought too hard about it. I mean, frankly, I think I was studying for the bar exam and I just had a lot going on. So if I saw it, I think I saw it and it was just a cartoon and I didn't, I don't think I thought hard about it. I don't think I loved it. I don't think I hated it. I think I thought it was cute. I thought it was nice that my daughter had a Disney princess she could dress up as that actually kind of looked like her. But when I saw it again, I have to say that in the current climate, I think in between 2009 and now, for various, various reasons, personal and political, I've done a lot more thinking about race and about my particular place in the racial conversation in this country because I'm a biracial woman from Louisiana. I just have a lot of intersections that that this movie called itself sitting in and then didn't really. And so I actually found it kind of tough to rewatch. I kept I kept having to pause it to like yell things at the TV and say things to my kids. And they were like, just play the movie. It's a Disney cartoon. And <laughs> on the one hand, yeah, it's a Disney cartoon. And if you, I think there's danger in overthinking things that are made for mass consumption, made for children, made for, but then there's also danger in writing off being thoughtful about things that are made for mass consumption and made for children. So the themes for me that stood out were, Now, watching it later, after having done all this self-interrogation and work and research about my particular place in history, is that it's weird to me and very telling to me that they chose to set this European and Eastern European fairy tale Mm -hmm. in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why? And I just couldn't stop thinking about why did they do that? Why New Orleans? And I think it's because... New Orleans is a place that has always been racially unique in this country. The rules have always applied a little differently in New Orleans. And I'm no historian of that history, but I've lived a little bit of it and I've thought about it a little bit. And that definitely stood out to me, the the choice to set it in New Orleans and then how they handled it once they did set it in New Orleans was very strange to me. Tiana as a working class princess really, she was the first Disney princess that I felt I identified with emotionally in some ways, because she was the first one who had the same motivations as me. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand Cinderella, strangle those people and take your house back. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I never understood that character. I just don't get uh-huh. it. I don't understand Belle. I don't, you know, I don't. The Little Mermaid? The Little Mermaid. i <laughs> really don't understand. Um, You will take my voice over my dead body. I don't, but, and so Tiana, this idea that she's a workaholic and that she's pathologically desperate to get this economic success and this stability and to get this dream. And frankly, her relationship to kind of being on the outside of white privilege looking in, like very adjacent to it, but constantly just licking that window is something I can identify with. But then they took that places that just didn't make any dadgum sense to me Mm -hmm. that I guess we'll get into. (laughs) And so on the one hand, the character by herself felt in some ways authentic. But where they took that character felt like somebody had hijacked her. Like I felt like I felt like somebody had met a girl like me and then spun their own very whitewashed story about her future without asking her if that's how it went. Um, Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. It does. So I just didn't. And also the, the 
the using of New Orleans as a character in the film was an interesting choice to me. One of the things that struck me the whole time as a person who has lived and worked in New Orleans. Now, look, you can't say you're from New Orleans unless your family has been there for five or six generations. Then you're from there. So I'm not from there, but I have lived there and worked there in a very formative part of my life. And I spent a lot of time there as a kid. I have a lot of family there. I'll be there next week for Thanksgiving. So to see the city portrayed in a way that isn't, I couldn't figure out what New Orleans they were talking about in this movie. And I couldn't figure out when New Orleans they were talking about in this movie. Like I kept trying to, I kept feeling disoriented. I kept trying to name the year to Mm -hmm. myself, but there were these elements of like, on the one hand, you got gas lights and, and I don't know, encroaching swamp everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, in the opening, right, when after, I mean, and I don't care, like, Tiana's mama is always Oprah to me. When Oprah, <laughs> and Tiana, when Oprah and Tiana get on the trolley to go home, mm-hmm. there is someone holding a paper that says Wilson is elected, mm. right? So that gives you an idea of the period of time. Okay, so it's supposed to be set approximately 1912, turn mm-hmm. of the century, a little after. Um, in the beginning. In the beginning, And right. then it's, because she's still a kid at that point. In right. the beginning, yeah. So there's kind of no, but at, but you've got all these, okay, so if you go to New Orleans now, what you see is this huge movement to restore, preserve, reuse, renovate all of these warehouses along the river, right? Mm-hmm. Why is Tiana doing that in 1912 or 1920 in New Orleans? Like <laughs> those were not decrepit. Then. They I were think it's a sugar used. mill. It's a sugar mill. It's a sugar mill. Right, but like but they were being used. They then. reproduce parts of the landscape of modern day New Orleans and um, call it a hundred years ago. Got it. And but also, it doesn't make any sense. So how how can she do that though? Mm-hmm. Well, that's another question. Is where? <laughs> where? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like how? Like that was always. I was like, girl, how are you able to do this in this time? You're saving your tips. And you got up enough money to buy the place and then renovate the place into this spectacular restaurant. And you were able to get people to work for you to do this. How? Yeah. Or she's going to make a down payment, but then there's no. So on the one hand, I thought it was really cool because there is this really amazing tradition of female entrepreneurship in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. especially in the black community. And there are women who own generationally amazing Mm -hmm. restaurants. Mm Mm-hmm. But I can't think of anybody, and maybe a listener will know one, but I can't think of anybody who, whose restaurant is on that kind of gilded, mm-hmm. grand scale, yeah. who is a black woman family restaurant in New Orleans. I can think of several places of much more humble. Now, look, they're delicious, and right. they're revered, and right. their history is amazing, but they sure don't look like that wrought iron with gilding and yeah. people in evening gowns. I mean, that's more of a Galatoire's kind of thing. That's not, it's just different. They, they mashed up several traditions of New Orleans without regard for the very strict rules and the very divergent history mm. that govern how those things ended up looking. I think any inconsistency, honestly, like, as someone who is from Mississippi and New Orleans holds a special place in my heart. I do think, though, and I talked about this earlier, that New Orleans became the scapegoat for a lot of the inconsistencies mm-hmm. that we saw. And it was, I think, essentially supposed to be written off as, oh, but you know, that's New Orleans. Or that's knowledge. Y'all know how knowledge, right? And and I wasn't okay with that. It didn't feel good to me because I don't that has not been my experience with New Orleans it's not a place where it's New Orleans became it's a backdrop but for me it was also an excuse for whatever didn't quite meet expectations and I think it's unfair to place that on a city that is so rich and has such a historical cultural significance to the south and to the United States I, I, I wasn't I wasn't feeling I wasn't feeling that. I'd be curious to know if they had, if they hired local consultants to talk to them as they made this movie, because Mm. I wanted to yell at the screen. Mm. We don't all just make gumbo all day, every day. That's (laughs) not what we eat every day, all day. A, it takes all day to make gumbo. 
So the idea that Tiana came home uh-huh. with her mom after uh-huh. hanging out with her mom being a seamstress and by that evening before everybody had gone to bed is inviting <laughs> all the neighbors over for gumbo. Are you joking? Right. Also, gumbo can be expensive. It is yeah. not a food that poor people yeah. made to share with the whole neighborhood yeah. every day. It's yeah. a holiday food. You make it. I mean, everybody can't afford all that seafood and stuff every day. So right. you make it as a festive winter thing. So it's. I don't know. I was kind of like, how are these people all making gumbo all the time? And, <laughs> like, beignets. What is- and beignets. You don't make beignets every day? So beignets are great, and they're actually not that hard to make, but they do take time. And also the party where she's sitting there with the beignets on the platter How serving the people. How many ovens does she have that she was able to make all that? I, was, I had to pause it and tell my kids, you can't serve beignets like that. You can't. So cold, cold beignets? beignets? That's no, nasty. Right. No, they're fried. They're fried. They're yeah, they're fried. Yeah, but they're no, cold. Like, but, but how, yeah, like why would you, I don't have Like they're a yeast like, dough. The dough has yeah. to rise mm-hmm. and then you have to fry it and then you have to eat them right away. Yeah. So they're mm-hmm. not, unless you had a, like a fry station, I don't know that there's something you would serve at a party just on a cupcake tier like that. Handing them out. I think this goes back to they, the all the food elements, they're a later addition. Originally, Mm -hmm. she was her name was Maddie, and she was a maid in the Mm. house. And when they announced those plot details, there was an uproar. Maddie was not seen as an African like, and I'm you know at this point I'm I'm remembering what Mm -hmm. the uproar was then, and also like how it's written about now. But Mm. Maddie was not considered uh, an African American name, and um, the maid relationship was. Mm -hmm incredibly problematic and so they got a lot of backlash and so they changed it to tiana because it sounded more princessy and it sounded no it sounded black black yeah Mm -hmm. and they made her an aspiring or a waitress and an aspiring restaurateur i found this really interesting there were there was an interview with the filmmakers uh that i found when i was doing my research and one of them says and this is a quote from the interview. Before we wrote the script, John said, you have to go down to New Orleans and experience it firsthand. Neither of us had been in New Orleans. Hmm. And it shows. <laughs> we went down. Then this is the other, the, the other one. We went down for a week and we toured everywhere. This, this was just eight months after Katrina. The devastation was unbelievable, but we also went through the French Quarter. We spent a day with a voodoo priestess. And then the other guy's like, and we went to some voodoo emporiums. We went out to the bayou and had a Cajun tour guide who fed the alligators little marshmallows to the side of the boat. We eventually brought down our whole team. We rode on a float in Mardi Gras the following February. We tried to make the film of Valentine to the city of New Orleans. New Orleans. That's exactly what residents of New Orleans do all day, right? Right. They ride, they ride floats on floats. And they feed alligators marshmallows. And they sit with voodoo priestesses, and that is how the city sustains itself, right? So I thought, I like everything you're saying, Esther, about how what what on earth did they think about? Like they went down for a week and played tourist, mm-hmm. and, and it is an extremely tourist interpretation of a city. Listen, not that there's anything bad about that. People in the New Orleans Tourism Development oh, Office yeah. are probably going to want to hit me when they hear me say all this because. <laughs> New Orleans purposefully promotes itself. It's a huge yeah. industry there. Right. And so I don't know that the city's mad about it. And I'm not mad about it. It just didn't. If you're going to make the city such a character in the film, it just struck me as a very surface level. Uh, I was going to say cartoonish. And I realized the irony of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cartoon. Stop overthinking it. Hi, this is Shannon. We're taking a break right now so I can tell you a little about the program bringing this podcast to you. Once Upon a Patriarchy is the first in what we hope will be a series of podcasts produced through the graduate program in writing and digital communication at Agnes Scott College. Podcasts in this series advance our vision of cultivating just and inclusive community and promoting respectful dialogue across difference through digital communication. As the faculty director of the program, I'd like to personally invite you to refresh your thinking and career with a master's degree or graduate certificate at the place where liberal arts and professional programs meet. Develop content for the web and social media and prepare yourself for whatever comes after through digging deep into the history, theory, and cultural impact of the mediums you're working in. 
build your writing and technical skills, and curate your digital portfolio. Take classes at night or on weekends in person in Decatur, Georgia. Our faculty care about getting to know you and making sure your education helps you meet your goals. For real, I'm one of them. I care. We even have a full-time career coach who can help you strategize your next steps. Visit agnesscott.edu slash graduate programs to request information. Now, back to the show. But it was a very surface level. Um, and Wanda and I were talking before this, and she said the words magical realism. Like when you can't, mm-hmm. when you don't want to deal with problematic parts of your plot, yep. magical realism can be a wonderful way to examine mm-hmm. difficult dynamics. Yeah. It can also be a way to just not have to answer questions about them. Exactly. And I think that that's how they used the city and they exotified it and mm-hmm. fetishized, fetishized it, it and <laughs> turned it into, and, it, and it's kind of rough because in the real city, in the real history, black women have such a rich, rich history. Mm-hmm. And it's actually one of my life goals to learn that history better and to understand the real history better. And it could, this could have been a vehicle for that. And I don't feel that it was. And there's a lot of, you know, when I lived in New Orleans, I was there as a young single woman and we would go out to eat, my friends and I, and these drunk idiots who had come in from out of town would plop themselves down at our table and just presume upon our time and attention. And the mater d' would have to remove them. This happened more than once at neighborhood restaurants. And so the notion that this, this Prince What's-His-Face gets off the boat and is dancing about with a trumpet, and that suddenly makes him worthy of this hardworking young woman who's a native of the city and is doing her thing and living her life is so <laughs> about it. And just access, I was irritated uh, about that. Right. Like, un- no, we don't like those guys. This unearned access to the community. Uh-huh. Like that, first of all, that never happens in the South nowhere. So mm-hmm. stop. Like you don't no. you, you don't do that, right? No. That, that that's just not even real. But the fact that, yeah, it was basically, let me, like, he literally ripped his clothes off, right? And he was like, pass me that ukulele. I'm going to go vibe with the black folk. And that's another thing for me that was really hard. Like, Lottie, her father, they ain't had no friends. They always had to come down to the hood. They had to come down to the hood. You saw when when the, the little boy was selling newspapers and you know, yeah. instead of giving him, what, a quarter? It's 1912, yeah. around that time. No, it's a little bit farther than it's that. It's like the 20s. Yeah. Instead of giving him a quarter, he gives him like a rack, uh-huh. basically. A rack of dollars, like maybe a thousand dollars, I'm thinking. And they come into, they come into, like, they come into the hood and they have breakfast. And they sit with the black folks and they kind of just flit around and I think the theme of, of fetishizing black culture is also seen within how Lottie, which I think, who I think is a young Blanche Devereaux, <laughs> is she just kind of, no one connects to these people. Yeah. These people don't connect to each other. And it's just all surface level, right? And I think that that was something that I think is a little bit, well, a lot of bit problematic and a little bit unfair fair and unrealistic in how in how race dynamics and culture work in the south also i thought it was really telling that so so my grandmother's family had women it might have been my great-grandmother but definitely older women in the family who were seamstresses for wealthy white families in mississippi and i can tell you that my grandmother did not go through her later life with a pleasant and grateful memory of those wealthy yeah. white families it yes. was a point of pain for her the way that she was treated and so to see that kind of glossed over as if oh they're just friends like genuine friends that that i mean lottie is self-absorbed and and ridiculous and she's an exaggerated funny comic relief kind of character but it's also a really that was tough for me because Mm -hmm. that felt like did y'all not talk to anybody whose family was domestic help for this kind of family did you not and that dynamic is still i don't know i'm gonna hurt some people's feelings but that dynamic is still kind of there in certain parts of new orleans that you have kind of a there's definitely still vestiges of that there. Mm-hmm. And so the notion that this was all just sort of a pleasant professional right. mutual relationship and that Lottie was going to ever make a sacrifice of her own welfare for Tiana, like that was 
that was a part that was just incredibly unrealistic to me and very difficult in the movie. This notion that this spoiled, rich, privileged girl in that cultural setting was ever going to see the need to sacrifice herself and her desires for her seamstress's black daughter. Right. <laughs> no, that's not, I mean, that's, that's cute, but it, it's ridiculous. And that was a theme that I, that was one element that I was just like, oh, come on, Disney. Like, you couldn't have. Yeah. I think it goes to show that, like, Disney doesn't know what to do with black women. Yeah. Well, they literally don't know what to do with black women. They had to turn her into a frog yeah. so that she <laughs> yeah. could fall in love. I yes. mean, they couldn't. That, that's the big. They couldn't have her body on the screen. No, they no. couldn't have her body on the screen. And they certainly couldn't have her falling in love with. Okay, first of all, they had to import the prince from elsewhere. Right. Who, yeah. Where are, is he from? There are plenty oh, of wealthy white pedigreed families in the New Orleans area that that could have been the prince character in this movie. Mm-hmm. But instead, they have to import an ethnically ambiguous prince from an exotic locale that doesn't have any racial baggage, right? So he's from Moldona or some made-up yeah, place. Yeah. It's not a... He's from a made-up place. Right. And he he's... Brazilian, I think, or mm-hmm. I, I, I believe. So. I think he combined kind of a Portuguese, his mm-hmm. Portuguese accent with some French kind of influences to try and create this new accent. That one day, <laughs> like I remember reading that because somewhere. you have to create, you have to, you have make, to make up an imaginary yeah. or a black person. You know, it's two thousand nine when they're making this movie, and so for me, very personally, that was a theme that was very frustrating because growing up as a biracial girl in Louisiana, I knew very very clearly the rules mm-hmm. about who in Louisiana could and could not date me and what I could and could not expect. It was one of the reasons that I always knew growing up that I probably wouldn't live there forever because it was just really narrow. And so for them to have to import this ethnically ambiguous prince from an exotic locale who doesn't really have, he doesn't fit in a category. First of all, the notion that a girl like Lottie would have considered him mm-hmm a real prince and been all over the idea of marrying him is stupid Mm -hmm. because that's not really how that necessarily would have gone. If he was brown enough to marry Tiana, he would have been too brown to marry Lottie. Right. Prince or no, let's be honest. And, and then, and so they can't, they don't think about who's the local royalty and Mm -hmm. does Tiana marry the local royalty? They import this exotic fellow. And then, even then, even with him being already the other with no rules attached, they got to turn her into a frog for them to fall in love and kiss. Uh All of their physical contact and romance happens in the form of frogs as animals. Like, you can't... I, I knew that I would have to find a way to completely transform myself to have a dating life without complicated rules attached in Louisiana. And it was impossible. And there was a period of my adolescence where that was my wish upon a star. Mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be, but I wanted to be something less complicated and more boxable. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not proud of that. It's something that I had to heal from and move past. But I think a lot of black women have a part of their story that is that mm-hmm. in some form. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the idea that the first time that I see a Disney princess on screen who looks anything like me in my background, that she has to turn into a damn frog to get romance, to get considered as a partner. And not just a frog of leisure. Okay. Yeah. She was a hard-working frog (laughs) and a mothering frog, Uh right? Can we talk about the fact that Tiana is also, she mothers everyone and everything. Mm -hmm. She is the answer to every problem, right? It is go to Tiana. Tiana has this. Or someone who kind of shifts from independent, this, you know, black girl magic, working, trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents, keeping my head above water, I don't have time for such frivolous fun um, type of woman that also kind of falls away into a, I'll just handle it. Mm-hmm. I'll just take care of it, which also you kind of see when she becomes a frog, she is taking care of Naveen, who I got to ask, oh. is this the best damn prince option that we got? <laughs> like, uh-huh. He's trash. Like even when he's he's, he's just nice and trash. It. He's worse. He is the worst prince. Oh my god! Ever. He is the worst Disney prince. And the fact that like this is what this is what Tiana deserved. 
for all of her hard work and staying the course and playing the role of the safe Negro to Lottie and dare I say Big Daddy um, and her family. This is how she's rewarded. Like this is legit the best we can do. We can argue that this is someone who was meant for Lottie. And so maybe there's a match there. But also, you want a friend to listen to all at your friend? Like, come on. Like, it's just trash. Yeah, I left myself at the end, at the closing scene. I found myself thinking, really? He came across an ocean to find some money because he doesn't have any skills and he doesn't have any money and yeah. he doesn't bring anything to the table. Nothing. His parents were disinheriting him. His they were cutting him off because he was so disappointing. Because he's a fool. <laughs> and so, <laughs> like, that's not, like, she has is a fool. so much common sense. She's a hard worker. I got really, I got really upset that with this persistent portrayal of women who work hard as having no sense of humor or fun. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, yes. I'm sorry. It's the oppression, okay? I don't feel like <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Get out my face. Well, it's this notion that the most the most epically qualified, gorgeous, intelligent, hardworking, competent black woman uh-huh. should be satisfied with the leftovers of white society. Yes. It's gross. Yeah. It's so but gross. I've run into it, this idea that that the scale somehow is different for who's who's your equal in the matchup scale changes by skin color or by access to some sort of inherited sense of noblesse that that mm-hmm. I mean, I look even at the end of the movie, I found myself thinking to myself, now, hold on a minute, because the other reality of New Orleans is that New Orleans has and always has had plenty of economically stable black men hanging right? out. That's what Come I kept on. thinking. So There's why a whole in the world? Class. And listen, I'm biracial. I'm in an inter-ethnic, inter-religious marriage. I have no problem. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like um, one of my pet peeves, which is people who beat the drum of why are good black men marrying other people? Because they fell in love. Okay, whatever. Right. But this isn't a good man. Right. Why mm-hmm. is this woman who has everything going for her and has goals and a dream and a place in this culture and, 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 marrying this empty pocket, empty head outsider with no plan for himself except the one he just abandoned, which was to steal Lottie's money? And how, like, how... And he's gonna end, get bored, and he's gonna cheat on her with a waitress at their at their. <laughs> he's, gonna, he's gonna be like getting involved with with oh, like, yeah, hooking up, last. like that is no. no. What's gonna but at the end, he's gonna be flirting from the stage. He's gonna be hustling in the streets. He's mm-hmm. gonna sell their money. He's gonna gamble with their money. The thing for me is when I think about <laughs> how Disney portrays black men in this film. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they're either the one, right? <laughs> Just well, her dad. Because Vassalier. Oh, yeah, yeah, Vassalier. But when you also look at, like, there's a scene when she is going from one job to the other, right? And there's this group of folks who are, you know, black men, black women. It's like, hey, Tiana, we're going out tonight. We're doing this, Mm -hmm. we're doing that. And she's just like, you know, you know, maybe next time, this and the other. So we see black men there, right? We do see it in the voodoo doctor, her father, right? Those are some very absolutes right yeah like first of all nobody can one your daddy lie to you two (laughs) um he's put on a pedestal right or someone who i assume died in service this country right and then you have the voodoo doctor who i mean I, i ain't interested in him in dating, any romantic interest. I just think he got a lot going on. Um, <laughs> I just think his, you know, he's a, he's a very... Um, he's, he's, his soul is, is taken. His soul is taken and, <laughs> and taken up um, residence and some other interests that is just not mine. I just don't align with. Um, and so I'm okay with us being incompatible. That's you cool. Know? That's cool. But I really think that their answers need not apply. <laughs> I think there's this erasure. Like, that's the erasure of, like, rendering, I think, Black men in this cartoon, like, ineligible, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're either mm-hmm. evil, completely evil, they're your dad, and they're angels, and they are, like, there's just 
there's no mountain high enough to get like you don't no one deserves him yeah, yeah. like evidently his wife didn't because he's no longer with her either right just, yeah. and then there are these guys who are just like yeah let's just go have fun and go have fun and the way that disney frames it is that everything is absolute it's like tiana can't have fun and so tiana is not a fun person and so if someone who someone offers that to her it seems like they're living a frivolous life mm-hmm. right and so that's not her type either and so by further othering black men they're othering also black women and black love mm-hmm. and it's just it's just not it's just not available and that re- like i remember watching this in two and i watched this in 2009 and i was like black girl magic ah, black girl magic get it get it and <laughs> I watched it this morning and I was just angry and I was just like, okay, Tiana, being a good Negro ain't going to save you. Mm. Being a good Negro did not save you from getting your business, getting your your property. They sold it right from under you. You know, we didn't talk about the. No one talks about the discrimination that she that she faced from the realtors Mm -hmm. who were eating her beignets and telling her that she was not able, Mm -hmm. actually she wouldn't be able to sustain her dreams, right? Give me my beignet. You get no beignets. You know? I just think that there, there is, I think there's some problematic, some really problematic ideas that Disney puts out about Tiana. That, first of all, you're never going to get what you want. Yeah. But if you work hard and if you're nice and if you kiss a frog, go through all these changes, befriend a desperate, narcissistic, sociopath and her daddy and (laughs) uh, keep cooking gumbo girl we might be able to do something for you and I just I I ain't rocking with that well it's more than that it's not just if you be good Mm -hmm. it's also if you Mm -hmm. this is kind of personal too it's hard because this is not an abstraction for me these are dynamics that I've lived and that I've had to examine in myself and I think I'm finally at a place where I'm a grown woman enough that I can think about them clearly. But it's not just if you're an A student, if you work hard. Mm -hmm. It's also the magical ingredient at the end of the film isn't that Tiana works harder than anyone else. This isn't a film about Mm -hmm. how hard work gets her where she wants to be. The magical moment at the end of the film is that she literally gains her her marquee title status by associating herself with this person who himself is a step more adjacent to white privilege. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is explicit in the film. And that was kind of, it kind of freaked me out that after all of this glossing over racial dynamics, the thing that they make explicit at the end is when I married you, I became a princess. Mm -hmm. Problem solved. I'm like, whoop. Okay, but there is nothing that this man brings to the table in terms of character or intelligence or financial resources or work ethic that is lending her anything, literally, explicitly. What he lends her that is the magic ingredient is his birthright of privilege. It's it's the essential ingredient of being a prince from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So now... And I, I had to go back and kind of think about it and relook at it. It's very ambiguous in the movie whether Lottie ever actually hands her enough money to buy this place and gild it up and fix it up and buy all the equipment and hire all the staff. I don't see that happening. The prince explicitly says he didn't bring any money. Mm-hmm. So literally yeah. her dreams come true when she gets herself adopted into a form that of something that is close enough. Mm-hmm to whiteness and money to be acceptable like that and and at the end of the movie it's not that we see her what was it was really weird to me at the end of the film because what we see is her and this lazy spoiled skillless man somehow putting enough sweat equity into this sugar mill to build it into a restaurant. He I'm does thinking, not know how to use a hammer. That is what I kept thinking. Know. He doesn't know. <laughs> I, I build things. That man yes, you build would be a nightmare right. to work with. Like, 
that is not somebody who understands geometry no. or structural integrity. No. He got tired like, of chopping a mushroom. That's a guy who's going to be, oh, my God, but when, yes. No, but he has been delivered. And when you have been delivered and when you are in love, you are also infected with patience and skill. No, that's that no. Never love does not allow you to understand, like, what is, like, a proper weight-bearing capacity for, uh, no, like, for studs. Like, no, that I doesn't. I think you're wrong. I think you're so wrong. I'm so upset by the love conquers all challenges right. of construction in this. I mean, I think <laughs> yeah, else, like, I mean, there's a lot to be upset about in this movie, but I was really upset by the renovation. I think you know. I think well. you, you bring up a really good point as to like this idea of whiteness as a commodity, and that's basically what happened. Right, just was able to acquire the ability to rise above her station explicitly by becoming by binding herself to him who is himself sort of an ambiguous position in the film and it's it's real rough y'all because it just ties into this whole history and it was so strange to me that they glossed over so much in the racial dynamics between Tiana's family and Lottie's family in the way that the people in the city interact with each other and in the way that But then at the end, they were so so explicit that this is because here's this prince who is ambiguous, right? He's supposed to be foreign, which equates to like somewhere in between black and white in the Louisiana racial hierarchy. You're not. You're not. So a story that I can tell you that's similar is that my my mother's side of the family, and I think it's my great great grandfather, was actually came to Mississippi while on assignment from Scotland Yard and he was not considered white or black. He was just a foreigner, right? And so while he was there, it was just kind of, you know, walking in between the raindrops. Nothing really, you know, because he was also a visitor. It wasn't until he decided that he was not going to leave that he had to make a choice. And by that time, he had already had a black family and he actually left he, he it was it was encouraged that he take on whiteness in a more succinct way. And he actually left and went not too far up the road and started a white family. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that to me in that movie, that really in the cartoon, that really stuck with me because that is very similar to the beginnings of my mother's family history, like this like this othering and the benefits of othering that never also is never attached to blackness at all so one of the things that really struck me in the relationship between Lottie's family and Tiana is that when Lottie and we're all having a hard time big daddy when <laughs> when Lottie you gotta and, say it like she said big daddy big daddy when Lottie and big daddy <laughs> oh god I can't. No, I'm going to talk like a person. Okay. Uh, when Lottie and Big Daddy are going to Tiana's restaurant, is that going to, or where she works, that's not going to be good for business. <laughs> like, they're going to drop a lot of money, but they're also going to make people feel really uncomfortable. It's gentrification. Otherwise, but I don't go know, come. though. Well, I actually thought about this, know. and I don't I'm... have the knowledge to answer this question. New Orleans is a unique place. Maybe that... it'd be okay. There's a ton of side-by-sideness and interweaving mm-hmm. of life in New Orleans in a way that there isn't in other places, even in Louisiana, and certainly not. I have had reason recently to become acquainted with, with Georgia racism. Yeah. And Georgia racism and Louisiana racism are real different flavors of racism, and it kind of surprised me. I like ours better because <laughs> <laughs> we have – there was always the, – the rules were layered over – a life of daily coexistence Mm -hmm. and intermingling. And at different times in New Orleans's history, there was so much intermingling and coexistence that people who were nervous about the breakdown of racial categories had to do extreme things, had to make rules explicit. So you had at different points in New Orleans history, laws governing the concubinage arrangements between light-skinned black women and white men and Mm -hmm. how their children could inherit property. You had formal traditions governing and, and, and enshrined in legality governing how you introduced your light-skinned black daughter to a white man of means to take on that agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had 
laws around the anxiety of the beauty of light-skinned Black women roaming the streets because our lives were so intermingled and so side by side. And because New Orleans is, New Orleans is a confined geographical space, right? And so there just isn't that far away to go. Mm-hmm. You can't run anybody out of town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is water everywhere. <laughs> so you have to live together. Mm-hmm. So there were laws governing how we could dress our hair mm-hmm. and what we what kind of head wrap we had to wear. And so, and those laws, when I researched those things, and there's there's an, an artist whose name I'm blanking on right now, but maybe I can email it to you for the notes, is her entire work is dyeing fabric in symbolical patterns and then painting portraits mm-hmm. of black women wearing headdresses made of her fabric mm-hmm. because these laws were so impactful on us. They were literally, you are so beautiful that you're scaring us. Mm-hmm. Uglify yourself a little, please. Laws. Mm-hmm. Make it easier for our men to know who you are and what they're getting into when they run into you in the street. Mm-hmm. So the notion that she, that it would have been effortless or easy or that no one would have raised objections, I don't, the whole, the whole, they had to turn her into a frog or they would have had to talk about all that. Mm-hmm. This episode had so much good content that we decided to split it in two. Stay tuned for the second half next week.